Thank you very much, everyone who's been involved this morning. Um, my sermon title is Turn Around. Um, and we're going to be looking at chapter 13 of Luke, so if you've, if you've got that with you, it um, be helpful to have it open. I was watching a film this week as I prepared for um, my message, uh, and it's a 2010 film that Sandra Bullock won an Academy Award for, for her portrayal of someone called um, Leanne Tui. And the film was called The Blind Side, you may have seen it. And the film basically chronicles the true story of a Christian family who, um, who take in this homeless young man and they give him a chance to reach his God-given potential. Uh, his name was Michael Orr. And not only did he kind of come out of this hopeless situation, this dysfunctional inner city upbringing that he had, but he actually went on, despite all the odds, to become the first round NFL draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens in 2009. That may not mean a great deal to you, um, but it's a big deal. And um, Sean Tui, her husband, noted that the transformation of their family and the transformation of um, Michael's life all began with two words. As one day they, they were driving along, they spotted Michael walking along the road in November. It was, it was a cold morning and he was just walking along in t-shirt and shorts. That's all he had. He, he didn't have anything else really. And Leanne uttered two words that changed their world forever. And the words were, turn around. And they turned the car around, put Michael in the warm vehicle and ultimately adopted him into their family and his life was never the same again. If you haven't watched the film, I recommend it. Turn around. That's what the word that we're dealing with this morning means. This word repent means to turn around, to have a change of direction, to head in a new direction in life. And we all need to do that. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to turn around. If you are a Christian this morning, then it's possible that we've wandered off in our in our walk with Christ. And maybe we need to turn around. You know, Jesus makes it clear why repenting, why turning around is so imperative in the passage that we've read this morning. It's interesting that after Jesus speaks about to the crowds about how they are able to look into the sky and discern the weather, you know, he said, you may remember from last week, you look into the sky and you see the clouds and you discern that rain is coming and you feel uh, east or west wind, I can't remember now, and you, you discern that uh, um, warm weather's coming. Um, he, it's interesting that after he said that, and he said that they're blind to spiritual truth, and after he tells them that they need to get right with God and there's an urgency to that before it's too late, it's interesting that their immediate response to what Jesus has said is to sort of try and justify themselves. And they seem to do it in an interesting way. Jesus has just been talking about judgment at the end of chapter 12. And it's as if some presence say, okay, well, I know what that judgment looks like. Um, Jesus, did you hear about these Galileans who Pilate put to death? That's what judgment looks like. People who sin get judged in that way. I haven't been judged in that way, so I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. So what you've just said about getting right with God, about making your peace with God, maybe that doesn't apply to me. 
Verse 1 tells us there was some present at that time who told him, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So their understanding, in biblical, we have to understand this, in biblical times, people had this um, kind of belief in society that if something bad happened to you or if you were born with a, a disability, it was due to your own personal sin or the sin of someone very close to you. And that was what they were suggesting here. So they're sort of standing back in judgment at the beginning of 13, in judgment of these sinful people who had this terrible thing had happened to, and they're trying to distance themselves from the judgment that Jesus has just talked about. And their conclusion is an odd one. Their conclusion is, well, I haven't suffered a tragedy, and I wasn't born with physical ailments, so I'm okay God is happy with me uh, as I am. And and that foolish conclusion uh, that they come to is one uh, that many people come to, I think. We think, because I'm okay now, that I'm going to be okay in eternity. Because my life is blessed now, that somehow the blessing on, on my life is not due to God's grace, but it's due to what I've done, how I've lived. I, I deserve the blessings that God has poured into my lives. And somehow we can even convince ourselves that sin isn't an issue. We don't read of the events themselves uh, that are referenced here of Pilate killing Galileans, and we don't read of the fall of the Tower of Siloam anywhere else in Scripture. But it's fair to say that Pilate has apparently put people to death when they were trying to offer sacrifices to God. We know Pilate's a a bad guy. It's Jesus who mentions the deaths of the Tower of Siloam. And one of the points that he's making when when he mentions that... Uh, is he's saying, you never ever know when your time in this world is going to be over. Though, you know, those who died as a result of Herod's sin, Jesus is saying, that deliberate action, they perished. And they did not know it was coming. And those who died as a result of this accident with the Tower of Siloam, they perished too. And they didn't know it was going to happen. And he answers them with a question. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, Jesus is saying, is suffering, is suffering the direct result of their sin? Is their suffering in this way a measure of how sinful They were. Is that what you believe? And on that basis, do you believe yourselves to be less sinful than they are? And in making this statement and challenging their thinking, here's the point. Jesus is saying that the earthly suffering that they're mentioning, that they think is God's judgment for sin, compared to the actual eternal suffering, the actual judgment from God of sin, it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. They perished. You're right there, Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Everybody will perish unless they repent of sin. And that perishing, it isn't what you think it is. It isn't in this world, it's in eternity. Jesus doesn't let them answer him. It's a rhetorical question when he says, do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He says, no, I tell you, 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And when he says perish there, he's not speaking about the means of them leaving this world. He's talking about where they went for all eternity. The the word perish is rooted in a word that means destruction. So the focus here is death and destruction, isn't it? I mean, uh, to be honest, when I got to this passage this week, I was like, oh man, I've got to do this. This is going to be cheerful for everyone. You know, this is what happens when you go through a book of the Bible. You have to, you have to take the good with the bad. And this is good and bad. Jesus doesn't let them answer this question. The focus here is death and destruction. They're talking about death. Jesus is talking about death. And death is the one subject that none of us really want to talk about. Not really. Because we, we like life. We see life as gain and death as loss, don't we? Very often. Paul didn't see it like that. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So there's a shift. A Christian has something that someone who isn't a Christian doesn't have. Not everybody can say, for me to die is gain. So why isn't death gain to everybody? Why is, why is death bad news for some and good news for others? Well, the problem of life is death. That's my first point. When God made man in the Garden of Eden, this death thing that all of us hate it did not exist. No, nothing ever died. Nobody ever died. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they'd still be alive to this day, enjoying God's company, Loving every minute of being in his awesome presence, full of joy in Eden. But they sinned. And when sin entered into the world, so did death. And that's always the outcome of sin. Romans 6.23, the, the, the wages of sin is death. And that's why no one wants to talk about death or think about death. Because our whole lives we spend trying to avoid it. We're like... Spiders. I hate spiders. <laughs> I can't stand spiders. I'm not alone by the sound of it. But if you watch a spider in a bath and it's wet, the spider will try and climb up the, the inside of the bath to get to the top. And if it's near me, I've usually got my shower head trying to stop it from happening. But we're, like, we're a bit like that when it comes to death. We're, we're trying to clamber away from it because we don't want to go down to the inevitable, the inevitable thought in our minds is, well, one day I'm going to go down that plug hole. I'm going to be flushed away. That's, you're a spider. We, do, we hate it. So the first thing we under, need to understand is there's a problem, and it's called death. And it, I don't know if the fact escaped you this morning, but this problem of death is pretty widespread. It's pretty common, and it's fairly unavoidable. You can't take a pill to get rid of it. It happens at the most inconvenient time. It's not nice. It's not pleasant. But you know, if you talk about death to some people, they're a bit nonplussed about it. They have an attitude that kind of says, well, you know what? One day I'm going to die, so I'm going to live my life. I'm going to make every minute count. I'm going to go out. I'm going to do what I want, where I want. And at the end of the life, Great, I'm just going to be pushing up daisies anyway, so I might as well get on with it. Well, that's great, but it's not realistic. It's not a a correct perspective. The problem with that way of thinking is is that the Bible says when we die, it doesn't just stop. Life doesn't just come to an end. 
You have a soul. Correction, C.S. Lewis said, you are a soul. You have a body. Your soul is eternal. When your life and my life comes to an end in this world, the next moment your soul is in eternity. It doesn't just stop. The problem of life is death. The problem of death is judgment. If judgment didn't exist, Steve and I would be out of a job, and we wouldn't need to be here this morning. If it was just life, then death, I would say to you, live how you like. Go enjoy yourselves. Don't worry about anything. But we can't live like that. You see that in the two verses, Jesus repeats two words that shake the foundation of our existences. In verse 3 he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says exactly the same thing twice to these people. So he wants them to understand that this is serious. This is life and death. He doesn't want them to get confused about their priorities when it comes to living this world. He doesn't want them to misunderstand that judgment, that somehow judgment only exists in this world, that judgment is, you know, that building falling on people, or those people going to um, offer sacrifices, getting killed, or, or driving along in a car, or whatever terrible tragedy might occur in this world. He wants them to understand that that's not it. That's not judgment. That's life in a sinful world. And he wants them to make it crystal clear that a change of direction is necessary, is critical in order to avoid God's judgment in eternity. That that they can't just keep going as they've always been going in the direction in life they've been going in. That they need to turn around. That they need to turn back to God, as fearful as that might be, because he's the only hope that they have to escape that eternal judgment. Hebrews 9.27. Have you got this in your diaries? Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, there is an appointment that you have, that I have, that none of us will miss in eternity. Standing before a holy God. In Mark 9, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, the judgment for sin is inevitable. And today is a day of grace. That's what the second part of what we read was about. The verses 6 to 9, that parable that Jesus uh, says, it brings out two things. It brings out, number one, the need for repentance. The need to turn around from, from the direction we're going in and trust in Christ. But the second thing it tells us is that God is merciful. And he is slow to punish. He's just been telling them the need to repent. And now he drives home this point that actually God is slow to punish. And he is giving you another chance, whoever you are this morning. But that chance is not going to last forever. You understand that? God is a God of grace and he's patient, but he won't stay patient forever. Time is running out. Last week we thought about how our lives are like um, an hourglass and the sands are just 
falling and falling and falling. You know, another week has passed since we met like this. And those sands are a week further forward. And we're a week closer to eternity. We're, we're kind of like those, you know, those 2P machines. If you get a Felix Stowe, no one ever, no Christian would ever admit to putting 2P in a 2P machine, would they? Our lives are like that. You know, you put 2P in and 2P in, you think, well, this is just going to go on forever. I'm never going to get anything out of this thing. Generally, you don't. It's very unwise to do those. But they're good fun. Anyway, no, I shouldn't say that as a pastor. But you know, eventually what happens is the coins will fall. Our lives are just like that. And when the coins fall, no more opportunities, no more chances. In an instant, we'll be face to face with God. The problem of life is death. Death wouldn't be a problem. But the problem of death is judgment. But there is a glorious, wondrous, mighty solution to death and judgment, and it's Jesus. The solution to death and judgment is Jesus. Jesus sets this scene with a fig tree in a vineyard, in verse 6, in fertile soil. The owner of the vineyard's been looking for fruit for three years, so it's it's a well-established tree. It should have fruit on it by now, but it doesn't. And each year the tree fails to bear any fruit. Each year he goes to the tree and is like, has it got fruit yet? No, I'll come back. Has it got fruit yet? No, I'll come back. Has it got, surely it must have fruit now. No fruit. So the owner gives this command because he's thinking, well, this tree is never going to bear fruit. And he says, cut it down. That makes sense, right? Why would you have a tree, a fruit tree, that's continually not bearing fruit? Not only was it not bearing fruit, it was taking up ground that otherwise might be productive. Cut it down, he says. But then in verse 8 to 9, the vine dresser counsels patience. Maybe treatment of the soil, application of the manure for a further year will bring results. Give the tree one last chance. One last chance to produce. But the vine dresser recognizes the facts. If it doesn't bear fruit, that's it. The tree's going to get cut down. You see, the owner of the vineyard in the parable is God. The vine dresser is Jesus. You are the fig tree. You are the fig tree. And so am I. And the fruit that God is looking for in our lives, the life that he's looking for, only comes by faith in him. And we can't get that life on our own. It can only be found in Jesus. That's why that song that we rarely sing, the song, Jesus is the answer to our every need, exists. Because he is the answer to our every need. When he died, we died. If we're trusting in him. When he was judged, we were judged. When he rose again, we rise again. We get life. All those who put their faith in him. For have their sins placed upon Christ at the cross. And when that happens, his righteousness is placed upon us. And the most extraordinary act of grace and love and mercy the world has ever seen took place. And we get life because he gave his. And we escape judgment because he took it for us. We gain heaven all because of Jesus. One of my favorite verses in, is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. talks about this, what happened at the cross. Why is the cross so amazing? Why is it we should worship Jesus? 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death offers life for everyone who repents. You see, death is a reality. Judgment of God, judgment for sins, is a reality and it's coming. And if you don't want to face that, you need to do something about it. You know, the Bible tells us a number of things about God. One of the things it tells us is that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's, he's not willing that, that any of us should be judged for our sin. His desire is that we turn around and know his forgiveness in our lives. So the question is, when God looks at your heart this morning, and when he looks at my heart, what does he see? Does he see life? Does he see a tree that's bearing fruit? What does he see? And if we're Christians, when he looks into your life and mine, does he, does he see lives that are being lived out for him or for us? Are we heading in the wrong direction? Have we veered off course? Have we started well, but actually... We've gone off and and now we find ourselves in a totally different place to where we thought we would be. It's not too late to turn around. It was a bright Sunday morning in the 18th century in London. A man called Robert Robinson's mood was anything but bright. All along the street, there were people hurrying to get to church. But in the midst of the crowds, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of the church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong. It had been years since he set foot in a church. Years of wandering, years of disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Suddenly he heard the clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching him. Turning, he lifted his hand to hail the cab. But as he did, he saw that the cab was occupied by this, this young woman dressed in fine finery for the Lord's Day. He waved the driver on, realizing there was someone already in there, but the woman in the carriage ordered the, the carriage to be stopped. She stuck her head out the door. She said, sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline, then he paused. Yes, he said, I'm going to church. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside this young woman. And as the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the young woman exchanged introductions. As that happened, there was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of inspirational verse opened it to a ribbon bookmark and handed the book to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be? Yes, he said. It's me. He took the book nodding. I wrote this years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she explained. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words he was reading. They were words that would one day be set to music and become a hymn of great faith to to Christians of many generations. He wrote these words, 
Come now, fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. I take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words, he said, and I've lived these words. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood. You also wrote, here's my heart. I take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. From that moment forward, he turned his heart back to God and he walked with them the rest of his days. It's not too late for you. That's the one thing I want to say to you this morning. It's not too late for you to turn from your sin, repent, turn around and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not too late. But tomorrow, it just might be. If you never have before, this is your moment. Now is your time to turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And Christian brother or sister, it's not too late for you and me to turn. To turn around from our lukewarm Christian living. To turn and live the life that God is calling us to live. Maybe we've fallen away from him in years gone by. Maybe if we're honest, we too would pen the words that Robert Robinson did. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all know that experience. The question is, will our response be the same as Robert Robinson's? Here's my heart. I take and seal it. The problem of life is death. The problem with death is judgment. The glorious solution to death and judgment is faith in Jesus. And all through the Bible, you see the same thing. All through it. Sinful men and women, undeserving, wretched, ruined rebels, being shown grace by a patient and loving God. Two words that will transform your life today and mine. Turn around. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when I read those words of Robert Robinson, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, how that is so true of my own life. How easily I go off track. How easily I forget who you are and I forget what you've done for me. Please forgive me. Lord, I I thank you so much for your grace and your love. I thank you that today in this room there is nobody too bad that you can't save. I thank you that today is still a day of grace and it's not too late to repent. Lord, if we've never done that, Will you help us to do it? And if we have done it, 
Lord, will you help us to examine our lives and turn them back to you? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish by singing that song that he wrote. Come, O fountain of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise.